This program is brought to you by SoundsTrue.com. At SoundsTrue.com, you can find hundreds of downloadable audio learning programs, plus books, music, videos, and online courses and events. At SoundsTrue.com, we think of ourselves as a trusted partner on the spiritual journey, offering diverse, in-depth, and life-changing wisdom. SoundsTrue.com. Many voices, one journey. You're listening to Insights at the Edge. Today, my guest is Dorothy Hunt. Dorothy Hunt serves as spiritual director of Moon Mountain Sangha and is the founder of the San Francisco Center for Meditation and Psychotherapy. Inspired by the legendary sage Ramana Maharshi and also the contemporary teacher Adyashanti, Dorothy is the author of Only This and Leaves from Moon Mountain. With Sounds True, she's written a new book called Ending the Search, From Spiritual Ambition to the Heart of Awareness, where she shares insights from her personal journey, along with original poetry, teaching stories, and self-inquiry practices to help us, quote, find the true identity of this precious and all-consuming I. In this episode of Insights at the Edge, Dorothy and I spoke about spiritual awakening and how an authentic awakening always involves a radical shift of identity. We talked about the practice of self-inquiry, and Dorothy led us in a guided session where we dropped into the heart of awareness to reflect on what or who is the seeker. Dorothy also read us a section of her poem, The Invitation, and we talked about how part of the awakening process often involves a burning in what she calls love's fire. And finally, we talked about the death of her husband of 50 years and how it's possible to simultaneously dearly miss someone and feel their presence in everything. Here's my conversation with Dorothy Hunt. Dorothy, to begin with, I'm wondering if you can share with our listeners a bit about your own spiritual search. When it was hot and heavy, when you were really searching, were you searching for God, for enlightenment? And then, of course, what ended the search for you? Was it an event or some kind of experience? Sure. Um, I think that I was searching for God from the very beginning. Um, my mom died very suddenly when I was 12, and I was told it was God who took life and gave it away. Um, and so I was really looking for this God from way back when. I didn't really call it beginning the search, but when I look back, I can tell that that was really the beginning of, of asking those existential questions. Um, not the who am I question so much, but, you know, what is God, what is life, what is birth, uh, what is death, those kinds of questions. And then, you know, I was drawn to meditation as an adult. Um, the church I went to, I was born and raised in the Christian tradition, but the, the Protestant church, you know, I went to had no meditation instruction or anything. So I bought a little book and discovered that you really need to practice meditation. And um, and so I chose to contemplate on a Bible verse, and the verse was, Be still and know that I am God. And so for many, many, many months, maybe over a year, I would just sit in the morning and go over those words, and they just became invitations. Be. What is it like to just be? To be still to be still and know that. And so that went on for a while, and then right in the midst of that, this mantra meditation came. I didn't know the meaning of the words. They were Hebrew words. It was Baruch Adonai Eloheinu. And I remembered the words, but I didn't know their meaning, so I called a rabbi and asked. 
Um, and he said, oh, it's a very common Hebrew prayer, you know, blessed art thou, Lord of the universe. And so that was a mantra that just just went on and on and on for maybe a dozen years, ten years at least, um, of just working its way into consciousness. I would sometimes dream it. I would say the mantra on my way to work or in the midst of an anxious moment or whatever. So that was that was not the hot and heavy part, but it was certainly the preliminary um, aspects of searching for God. Um, and then, fast forward a bit, uh, Ramana Maharshi, who was a 20th century sage, appeared in a dream, and I didn't know who he was, whether he was dead or alive, what he taught, but I knew I had to find out because there was such a radiance in his presence and such a love in that being. And so I started reading, and I felt the spiritual teachings of Ramana Maharshi, and I, I just felt like I was in the presence of the deepest truth I had ever encountered up to that point. And uh, Ramana's path um, was what he called the direct path. Um, it was self-inquiry. You're just asking your mind to try to find its source. So, you know, most practices, most meditations and so forth assume a self that's separate from the God or the enlightenment or the truth that it's looking for. But this was, you know, kind of turning that looking around and finding out who or what is this self that thinks it's practicing, thinks it wants to be enlightened or find God or or whatever our, our deep impulse is to, to awaken to our true nature. So that just began... Um, you know, another kind of practice, I guess you'd say, but it wasn't um, formal. It was just a rise in any moment, like who's sitting here with her client. I work as a psychotherapist. and Or who's looking at herself in the mirror? Who's feeling anxious? And and every time, after a bit, you know, it first started sort of feeling intellectual, but after a bit, this interest in trying to find the source of the I just began to quiet my mind. And of course, as any of us know who've tried to find that answer to the question, you know, we come to a place of I don't know. And and so that question, who am I, which can feel intellectual to a lot of folks, is really not meant for an intellectual answer. It it has the potential, if we're interested or if we feel moved to use that uh, particular question, it, it has the potential to simply quiet the mind and dissolve it in this mystery. And so when the mind can't find its source, it frequently will go elsewhere. It will come back to the known or go to memory or adjust its clothes or whatever it does to stay away from the mystery. But at some point, at some point, we may um, discover that uh, we just stay put at the edge of the known and look into the unknown without an idea of what it is. And so that really was an intense, intense time of wanting. Now it had not, you know, it wasn't so much God I was looking for because Ramana had delivered the message that God, self, and Guru were, were one, but I didn't know that from the inside out, and yet there was some sense of the truth of that. Um, and so there was just this intense desire, you know, and who can explain why the desire is so so intense, but it just felt like I was willing to die for that for that knowledge. It, it was no suicidal in, in, ideation, you know, I loved my family, my husband, my kids, my work, um, but there was just this sense, I will give up my life for this. Um, and it was, you know, I'm sure kind of an egoic drama at that point, but it was there was also something so deep, you know, the desire was so, so, so deep. Um, and so, you know, I would wake up in the night, um, most every night for many years, and I never felt like it was insomnia. I just felt it was, you know, the divine calling me to meditate. And so there was just intense, kind of practice in the middle of the night, and then I would go back to bed and sleep until morning. And um, But that was probably the most intense time of seeking. 
the end of seeking came in, uh, I guess you would call it an experience, but, you know, it was a moment in time. It was just a moment in time where uh, time and space disappeared and there was just a sense of knowing that I am what I was seeking, that, that everything is that, that there is no separate one to be enlightened. And that was an amazing discovery because... Usually we think, well, it's a person who becomes enlightened or becomes awake or whatever. But um, this was not that. It was, it was just knowing that you were all of it, that what you are was not this separate person. You've never been separate from, from this divine mystery, the presence, by whatever name we want to call it. And um, there was a sense of joy and recognition and love <laughs> You know, it was it was in my case very dramatic. Sometimes it's not at all. It's uh, very quiet. But f- for me, it was just there was a sense of um, knowing, in a sense, that what I had been waiting for was was what I was I what I really and truly am. And and it had always been there. It had always been the truth of my being, our being, your being, life's being itself. Um. I don't know if you want me to keep going. I hadn't met Adyashanti yet when this search happened, but that was another whole kind of intense period of of um, of realizing that awakening to our true nature, as profound as that is, is just step one in the journey. You know, it's not a one experience in a done game, even though you know so many teachings make it appear that that's the end. It's actually just the beginning. And so, you know, the the next phase, I would say, was just this looking at all the ways that separation wanted to continue to reside in this conditioned mind of ours. And so there was this sense of un, unraveling that, and sometimes that felt painful. There was There were moments where... You know, it just felt there was a fire burning in my being, literally, you know, great heat. Um, and and yet there was that sense of just knowing it was needed, you know. Like uh, Adya and I both spoke at the same conference, and the minute he started speaking, I knew there was some transmission happening that, that was needed. And um, so even though I wasn't looking for a teacher... Uh, I was invited very shortly to go on a retreat with him, and it was, you know, in that first retreat, which was in the Sierra Mountains, um, I felt just this connection to the Buddhist lineage that seemed to come through him so powerfully and profoundly at that point anyway. Um, And so then I was just exposed to... um, what I would call the post-awakening process, which continues on. It's not a, it's never a done deal. There is an end of seeking, but there's no end to the infinite um, revealing itself or to our ability to know ourselves and life and these human expressions of life more and more deeply. Um, so Dorothy, so just to be clear, for you, the end of seeking came with that first profound experience, which you said was quite dramatic. And I wonder if you could put it under a magnifying glass for me. What actually happened, that first experience? Oh, okay. Um, well, I was on a private retreat um, in Olima, California, at the Vedanta Retreat Center. I was just by myself. There was no teacher involved. And um and that retreat center had in the meditation room pictures of Ramakrishna and Sarada Deve and Vivekananda. Now, I, I was not a disciple. I knew very little about any of those folks. But I was meditating in the meditation room one night, and it seemed as though Ramakrishna just came out of his picture and said, you know, if you stay awake till 10 o'clock, something incredible will happen, you know, something important is going to happen at 10 if you meditate till then. I thought, well, of course I can meditate till then. But in fact, um, what happened was, you know, I, I don't know to this day whether it was a dream or what happened, whether I was knocked unconscious, <laughs> but there was this sense of, of Ramakrishna coming out of the picture and just 
putting his hand between my eyes and I was out. So whether that was a dream or something else, I don't know. It's not so important, but I was not awake at 10. And I woke up about 10, 15 or later, I don't really know. And I was really mad, you know. It's like I felt like I was just set up. And then I just started laughing because I realized that my desire to be some other place was what really had been holding me back from discovering what was here now, what's always in the here now. So it was the next day that I went up um, to a spot called the temple site. It's just a circle of trees. And uh, I was just open that day, and I felt like my teacher was a divine feminine force. And I said, well, what is my um, lesson for the day? And what came was time and space. And um, and I just sat on a stump and I looked at the top of the trees that were surrounding me for I don't know how long. My neck got sore, but I couldn't stop just looking. And, and then just in one sudden recognition, you know, it was like time and space were created so you could see yourself. And that self was not a separate somebody. That self was the only self there was. Um, and so, and then it was just... In that moment, seeing that all the searching had been for what was already here, all the searching is what we all are. Um, and then there was just sort of such incredible gratitude and joy for that discovery and humility because, you know, the mind thinks it's going to get it. It, it. it thinks its search is going to end the search, you know, and it starts looking as though, you know, we're in a class where we want to get an A or something. And so... There had been so much searching and praying and meditating and candle lighting and you know, uh, you know, sitting sitting with uh, malas and rosaries and so forth. I mean, my I had many different traditions that seemed to cross before that moment. But, um, but then it was just seeing yourself as all of it, seeing yourself as a blade of grass, as a bird flying across the sky, as the sound of the wind. You know, it's just a sense of oneness. Um, and the re- kind of the recognition that the mystery of it all didn't really have a name. You know, it, it, it was just this unspoken mystery, you know, that we can't really put into words, and yet here it is, and we feel it in moments. And And, and that moment was just one of recognizing, remembering, really. It wasn't anything new, but there was just a memory, a remembering. Oh, my gosh, this is what, the, this, is what this life is. You know, it's, a, it's an expression of this. And time and space are so that it can see itself and love itself and so-called relate to itself. Now, Dorothy, I think that people have had, and I'm sure many listeners of Insights at the Edge have had, profound experiences. They might call them mystical experiences, peak experiences, moments when there was a subject-object collapse or time and space dissolved. Mm -hmm. But then afterwards, maybe it lasted for days or weeks, but there's a sense of reconfiguring into a separate self again and continuing to seek, truth be told. That yeah. was this cool, it's something that I reference in yeah. the past that happened during this great sunrise or sunset moment. Yes, exactly. But it sounds like in your case, there wasn't quite a reconfiguring into a separate self in the same way. Is that true? I would say that's true, but it isn't as though the separate self didn't reconfigure, but it was seen from the perspective or the vantage point of this, you know, of this bigger, wider perspective. It, to me, you know, an authentic awakening always includes a shift of identity. Now, that identity may not stay stable, you know, but, but we can't ever go backwards and pretend like we don't know what we know. So for me, there was that sense of, of, uh, of remembering. And uh, for some time, I used self-inquiry, you know, to maintain a sense of the, this absolute and then, um, you know, after meeting Shanti, it was like, well, you know, just hanging out in the absolute is 
kind of a way of hiding from our humanness, from how does this want to actually be embodied? What does our realization want to, how does it want to live in our particular expression of life? And so that's where I think we get to really look more deeply into how we unenlighten ourselves, so to speak, how, you know, how we keep putting back up the, as the Buddha used the term ridgepole, keep putting back up the ridgepole that holds up a separate identity. So those things are dismantled, um, you know, not all at once for most people. You know, it's a, it's a process that, that, that I think is aided by our devotion to truth, you know, our devotion to wanting to live what we've realized and not to not to denigrate or devalue whatever tastes that we've had, you know. A lot of people say, Well, yeah, that happened once in retreat, but la 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 and and, and aren't really honoring the depth of their experience or their knowing and, and wanting to see how is it that I'm moving away from what I know? Mm-hmm. No, no, you use this metaphor from the Buddha of the ridge pole that keeps mm-hmm. our separate identity intact. Tell me more what you mean by that. And is it true that the ridge pole was sort of removed or dismantled in some sense in this experience that you had of time and space being seen through? Well, certainly in that moment, it, it's not as though it didn't try to put itself back up at times. Um, but what I mean by that is, you know, when the Buddha, you know, he, he, he'd done all kinds of meditation. He, he had been with the best meditation teachers of the day. He mastered every single practice, and still he didn't have his heart's desire. So when he sat under the Bodhi, Bodhi tree, you know, he had to confront what I would call our egoic um, obs- obscurations, you know, more and more deeply, you know, the the dancing girls that appealed to lust and the demons that appealed to fear. And all of those things are inner things. They're not outer things. They're inner conditions of our mind. We all have them. Um, but he sat and, and said, I, I will not be moved. And I think this is what we're invited to do in what I would call the embodiment process or a deeper awakening. Um, there are many kinds of awakenings. There's awakening up out of identification with the form, but then there's an awakening of the heart which is the opening to love and compassion. There's an awakening of the gut or the hara, which is more of our existential grip can fall away. Um, I mean, I'm going a little off the ridgepole, but to get back to that, it's kind of like we, we, get, to, we get to see into how we, how we do that. You know, what are the situations? Who are the, who are the folks that seem to trigger these, re-identifications, the reification of a separate somebody, you know. It's not that we don't have a personality or a particular flavor or conditioning that will continue on, but, you know, the ridgepole holds up this separate identity. So, you know, if you imagine that there is this, probably many ways that we hold up a separate identity, we begin to look into our mind and discover what they are. And um, kind of the Christian awake guy, Anthony DeMello, he said uh, one time, he said, when you're looking into your mind, be like a bird watcher and not a dog trainer. (laughs) I always love that because so often we'll see something and then we'll judge it and then we want to get rid of it instead of really looking deeply to see with compassion what are those places that, you know, kind of create the ways that we keep unenlightening ourselves, you know, in in one moment or another. So if you even imagine that that comes down, the ridgepole comes down, you know, that's holding all that up, then what's here? Who who, who are we then? Um, And I know I, I invited to meditation once about looking into the ridgepole and and then what's here when you take it down, what's it made of and how does it feel when it's gone even for a moment. And one man man told me, he said, well, I saw my ridgepole was just covered with sticky notes 
from my parents and grandparents and teachers and all of those people about how I'm supposed to be. And when that ridgepole of how I'm supposed to be was taken down, there was just this incredible freedom to be, to just to be myself. And I think that's the freedom of our true nature. It's not that we should look a particular way, but we we're the expression of something divine, something whole, something that's total. And you know, it doesn't mean that in this form there's going to be some perfection. You know, the perfection is in the whole. So we begin to see what I would call the beauty of imperfection. You know, it's kind of like there's a Japanese aesthetic called wabi-sabi that really honors you know, things that are imperfect and impermanent and so forth, you know, like the chipped cup that you love that's in your cupboard or the misshapen bowl that seems to have so much beauty Mm -hmm. and soul. We're like that, you know, these expressions, these human expressions, you know, we can feel, we can learn when we know who we are, we can learn that there's great love, great love for these expressions exactly as they are. And that's really what begins to transform our living and transform our way of viewing ourselves and the world. Now, I'm wondering, Dorothy, what you would say to someone who's listening right now who says, look, i got to tell you the truth. I'm a seeker. The -hmm. reason I listen to podcasts like this and read so many spiritual books is because I'm seeking. So when I hear about ending the search, I think, well, that sounds great, but I'm not there. I'm desperately seeking. That's the phase I'm in. Well, that's kind of what this book is about, ending the search from spiritual ambition to the heart of awareness. It it really is, um, in a sense, the first part of the book especially, you know, is, is really about the seeking and, and how... We keep imagining that our egoic consciousness, that consciousness that takes ourselves to be separate, is going to find what's not separate. That, that, that this journey that we think we're taking in time is going to lead us to the timeless. Um, and so the invitation is just always to come back to now and to see what's here when we just stop trying to go there. Um, and seeking is... You know, this is seeking itself, you know, the the deep longing of our heart for truth or love or whatever. We imagine that we long for something that isn't here. Otherwise, we wouldn't long for it. But we don't long for something we don't know. It's like a food. I mean, you might be curious about a food you've never tasted, but you wouldn't long for it unless you knew it. So if we follow that longing, that seeking backwards, back to the source and that's what self-inquiry does who who is it that's seeking you know we 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 really get interested in or what is it that's seeking or what is it that's longing can i follow the longing back into my own heart and um i kind of you know i i i think of it sometimes it's like there's a there's a fisherman or a fisherwoman in our heart that's you know sending out this uh longing like a fishing pole and it catches the the elusive ego that's darting back and forth in the ocean of awareness, you know, and as soon as it catches it, it starts reeling it backwards. But the mind thinks it's going to find it out there, you know, someplace else, that somebody else is going to be able to give us who we are. But no one can give you what you are. You know, we can't gain it and we can't lose it. It's both the good news and the bad news. It's it's really just here, but we're we're often looking in the wrong place. We're looking in the mind of thought instead of in the search for who that who that is, who's the seeker. So to me, you know, the there are lots of wonderful practices and methods that can help the mind quiet down long enough to receive the truth of its being. But um, but the question, who's who's the seeker? I think it's really relevant because it begins to turn our looking around to the place where we're most apt to um, have it revealed. So let's go into that question, who's the seeker, who am I, the practice of self-inquiry. Okay. I've heard from a lot of people that it's a practice that 
stays on the surface and they don't know how to go deeper with it. Like I know the right answer is who am I? I am true nature. I am everything. I, you know, I'm the Godhead, whatever. I know the right answer. So my mind, yeah. So my mind throws out the right answer and I, I haven't transformed. That practice doesn't work for me. And so I'm wondering what you would say to that person to help them go deeper. Well, I think lots of, Lots of folks have that experience with, uh, with self-inquiry because it seems dry, it seems intellectual, it seems like, you know, who am I, who am I, well, nothing comes, so I'm not doing it right. But what I would say, and maybe we could just do a little meditation in the moment, would that be fine? Wonderful. To, to, to see what it's like maybe to enter into the unknown. And, of course, the unknown is really this timeless dimension of our being, of ourself. In order, to, in order to enter, however, <laughs> we have to leave certain things at the door. So I just invite you and your listeners to just close your eyes. And I want to in, just invite you into this timeless dimension we'll call now. But we have to leave certain things at the door, even for a moment. We're just invited to leave our thoughts at the door leave our projects at the door, leave our worries at the door, leave our stories at the door. We can pick them all up. They'll be there, not to worry. <laughs> They'll be there when we, when we want them again. But we're just inviting our uh, attention into this space of now, this awake, aware, heart space resides as each one of us. So we, when we feel like we have, to the best of our ability, left those additions to who we are at the door, we step, step into this deeper dimension of our being. There really aren't words here. And that's why it says, it cannot really be spoken, but we feel it. We can feel, we can sense there's something that's deeper than our thoughts, our projects, our worries. And so we step into this dimension. And, and, and we, we, we notice, we can ask, well, what's still here? What's still here? Is perception still here? Well, yes, it is. Are our senses still here? Well, yes, they are. However, you know, our our worries here, our fears here. Well, it's up to you to find out. But there is this dimension that's still here, even when we've left so many of the things we identify with outside the door. And so, as we, as we become a little bit more in touch with this dimension. What's, what's here? What is here? Who is here? Who am I? Who am I? If even for a moment I'm not identifying with all those things I've temporarily left outside the door. And so the who am I question can lead us to this quiet space, to this silence of our own being, um, simply by getting curious about what is here when I'm not continually taking up my identity in all those, all those things. It doesn't mean they're not here. It doesn't mean thoughts will ever completely vanish for a long period of time. They might, they might not. That's not important. There's something that's aware of thoughts. There's something that's aware of stories. There's something that's aware of your life from the, from the get-go. And this that's aware is, is also compassionately aware. So that's why I call it the heart of awareness, the, the true self. It doesn't come and go. It's, it's, it's our presence our deep presence, and it's only available now. It's just available here. <laughs> and, and you might say very simply, it's just here for what's here. And so 
you know, we can we can use inquiry in lots of different ways. It doesn't have to be just who am I, but you know, what is true? What is love? Whatever our question is that it's an existential question that really, you know, has some juice. And if it's not who am I, then find your own question. But eventually you're going to be invited into this unknown space where words just dissolve. And now what are we, you know? And now what's true? You're listening to Insights at the Edge, produced by Sounds True. We welcome you to learn more about our collection of more than a thousand learning programs and receive three free gifts just for visiting us. Go to soundstrue.com backslash free. That's soundstrue.com backslash free. And now back to Insights at the Edge. One of the things you write, Dorothy, is that what questions, when you're practicing self-inquiry, are more helpful than how or why questions? Mm -hmm. I'm not going to say why is that. Uh, What will I say? (laughs) Uh, Can you help me understand? Can can you comment on that? Yes. (laughs) Well, because the why questions always engage our mind. The mind wants to know why in, in in large part, so it can control something, you know, and it's it's fine, you know, for for issues of you know of science or you know cooking or whatever, but when we're coming to to investigate who or what we deeply are, you know, the what question can lead to an experience of it, whereas the why question just engages our mind. So somebody, why can't I wake up? Or you can you can ask yourself, what does awakeness feel like right now in my feet? Let's start there. What does awakeness feel like in my feet? And many people almost immediately will will have a response of energy or something that will seem like it comes alive just from the question of what is it, not why. You know, so we can say, what does awakeness feel like in my mind, in my heart, in my body, rather than why do I have this contraction? (laughs) I'm not saying that's never an interesting question or, or perhaps useful, but when we get interested in the what is it, you know, what is this experience called contraction? You know, can I, can I be intimate with it? Can I be that, that energy even for a moment? so that I'm not separating myself from it. So the, that's why, it's, to me, it's, it's so much more productive to get interested in the what of our experience rather than the why of it. Mm-hmm. That's very helpful. Now, you, you also write, in a true question, the answer is already present. And I was curious to know what makes a question a true question. <laughs> that is a good question, Terry. <laughs> um I think I think it's it's kind of the sincerity of the intention behind the question. You know, it's the best I could do. It's like if we're devoted to truth, if we truly want to know the truth of our being, um, and not just how do I look a different way or how do I feel a different way, but we're really, really interested in the truth of who we are, then the question will arise from the knowing, do you know, like, what is love? And then turn it around, love is what, do you know? And then we let it be revealed, do you know? Who am I? I I am who, you know, or what? What is, what is it? You know, it, it, it guides us, we might say, back to the answer. But the answer is not going to be an intellectual thing. It's going to be an experience, maybe of of uh, of who we've taken ourselves to be to disappear momentarily, which of course for many people is a frightening thing. But uh, it also leads to a, a deep a deep freedom, you know, to know that you're empty 
of a separate self, even at the same time you have this unique expression of yourself. Do you know that it's unlike any other expression and there's just such a beauty in realizing that each of us is that with the wholeness of being expressing itself as at this moment, this feeling, this body, this this experience. I don't know if that answers the the question, but it's kind of the best I can do at the moment. <laughs> no, Dorothy, the subtitle of your book is From Spiritual Ambition to the Heart of Awareness. And even as you were describing this practice of self-inquiry, moving into the heart of awareness as we ask questions. And you Mm -hmm. write in the book that this is a journey into the heart's cave. And Mm -hmm. I thought that was such an interesting image, the heart's cave. What do you mean by that? Well, because, you know, initially it feels like it's dark and hidden. You know, we've often, or maybe most of us, in one way or another, We've put walls around the heart to try to protect something precious. You know, we felt like we were hurt or we weren't seen or we weren't understood as little kids. Um, Or we've been hurt in love later on in life. And so these walls get built up around the heart and and we lose touch with with what's hidden in every moment, which is this heart of awareness. It's not just an awareness on high that's, it stays detached. It's it's totally intimate and compassionate and loving of its own expressions. And so um, the we have to go into the unknown. And I guess that's why I, I call it a cave, or why in that moment I called it a cave in the writing. You know, it's beckoning us to its emptiness and its fullness simultaneously. Its emptiness of self and its fullness of love. It's, you know, emptiness of concepts and yet full of truth. And um, so, you know, to enter the heart's cave is to go into that deepest dimension of our of our being without knowing what we're going to find. It takes a little courage, you know, for most people. Because as soon as we hit the unknown, you know, the mind feels a little squirrely, you know, and doesn't much like being there. Um, but here's where, you know, the, the true spiritual seeker will at some point or another have the courage to um, to continue, we might say, into into those those deeper dimensions of of the unknown. And uh, and when we do, something may reveal itself in the in a moment of grace. Now, there's several things I want to talk to you about, Dorothy, but two questions have occurred to me about what we've talked about so far that I want to make sure we cover. And one is, Uh in your telling of your own personal story, you talked about how you had a dream of Ramana Maharshi and you never even knew who he was as a teacher before the dream. And you talked about Ramakrishna in a photo and uh, experience you had, whether dreamed or made up or whatever of him sort of reaching out from the photo and impacting you in some way. And I'm curious, what do you make of this? What do you make (laughs) of these teachers from India in the past impacting your life in such profound ways? Well, I mean, there, there are a lot of ways I could describe it, you know, I mean, in a sense, life is a mystery. So, you know, we don't go wrong by, by, by invoking the mystery. But, but beyond that, you know, I think that all of us have a mind stream of consciousness that's running through our particular expression. And that mind stream carries uh, karmic impulses uh, um, from the past that, from my perspective, are not personal Karma is not personal; it's impersonal. But there, but there, nonetheless, there are, you know, the, these currents we might say that that don't just start with our birth. And there are lots of different currents, aren't there? There's the lineage of our our forefathers and foremothers, and there's the the there could there can be a spiritual lineage. I mean, you look in the Tibetan tradition, and, and, and you see see it so potently, but other traditions as well. You know that that seem to continue on what we might call an evolutionary journey, um, but to me it feels like that journey is always toward wholeness. So whatever these karmic knots are, or you know, 
moments, places where we feel the separation or we feel pain, we feel suffering. These are not because we're doing life wrong often, but because something is coming into consciousness because it wants to be liberated. It wants to come back into the wholeness of being. It doesn't want to stay in the closet hidden. And we carry whatever we carry. So I think we carry a spiritual lineage with us. Um, and it, it's not always just one, you know. We, we've lived as everything. If there's only one, then what we are has been everything. The saint, the sinner, you know, the... The, the Buddhist priest and the and the agnostic and the atheist and the you know and the anyway everything and so you know we may have a, a number of different dimensions we might say that move as the as the mind stream in our own experience that that somehow function um, in terms of who or what we're resonant with so you know my sense is that in what I would call past life dreams, you know, which have sometimes come into consciousness in my experience, you know, there definitely was a connection to uh, both the realm of Shiva and Shakti, you know, in ancient uh, times and in Buddhist tradition in Asia and so forth, that these dreams are not of a me that's separate, but they come as, as, as uh, memories that are carried in the mind stream. Mm-hmm. Okay, and then the second question that's occurred to me, and I, I notice I feel a little cautious asking it because in a, in a certain sense we're talking about this sense of not being separate from anything or anybody else, but yet I want to ask you a question about being a woman, being uh-huh. in a gendered body. Uh, in the Me Too era. <laughs> yeah, and if you have any sense that as a woman spiritual awakening has expressed itself differently in you Mm -hmm. because you're a woman. I think so. And in what way? Well, I mean, the ultimate truth is not different. There's no gender to the ultimate truth um, at all. But as it's expressed, I mean, we know if we've read any history at all, and we don't even have to go to history, how the feminine has often been denigrated in our spiritual traditions, uh, has been devalued, um, and I, I I I feel like the feminine face of awakening often often does have a different dimension in that it is so much more inclusive of our human experience, so much more uh, earth oriented, and not just oriented to the to the sky energy, but the earth energy. Um, and uh, I remember having a conversation with some other so-called spiritual teachers, and, and the men felt like when they were teaching, they, they were getting a download from above into, you know, down, down. And the women felt like the energy was coming up from the ground as it was beginning to speak. So I'm not sure that that holds for everyone, but I do feel like, you know, our... Our, our gender does play a role in how this is expressed. And I think there was a, you know, there was an ancient story of a, of a, of a Buddhist woman who, you know, had experienced a great depth of awakening. And, and, and one of the monks or priests or whatever said, oh, it's just such a shame you're not born a woman or born a man. Maybe in your next life you'll be a man and then you can really become enlightened. And, and she said, and, you know, it's a legend, I think, but, you know, she said something le- like, you know, no, you know, I, every lifetime from here on, I will be, I will incarnate as a woman, just, in a sense, just to, sh- to, just to show that it, you know, to be awake doesn't have a gender. You know, there is no gender to what's awake in us. And, simultaneously it wants to express itself however it does and i think that the the feminine the yin energy that receives you know that isn't just going out and and getting something or doing something as a as a straight line out but this yin energy of the feminine whether we're men or women you know, it, it has an incredible power to, to receive life and to receive each other and to receive our human expression, you know, and, um, and it births children, you know, uh, and it births spirit. So 
um, it's not male or female, but just that, you know, that energy of the, we we could say the Divine Mother, but it's also Divine Father. But, you know, that that energy of yin that, that just is open to receiving, there's a great power there. And a lot of times I think it has been... Um, devalued and hopefully it's coming into its own mm-hmm. yes now Dorothy I wanted to ask you to read a bit from a poem you've written called The Invitation and it's a beautiful poem that many people I've heard quote different parts of the poem when they've been talking about the awakening process and aspects of the awakening process that perhaps they were surprised by. So there's a a section of your book called Burning in Love's Fire, and you share two paragraphs from The Invitation. The Invitation in its entirety is quite a long poem, but I wonder if you could just share these two paragraphs with our listeners. Sure. Um... Sometimes she, and I'm using she as the divine here, sometimes she cleans your house gently, dismantling it room by room, but often she just comes in with a torch and you feel in your gut the fire burn in the center of your separate comfort and you watch the contents of your house melt and turn to ash and the roof blow off. And just when you think there's nothing more that she could take, she opens the ground beneath the barely intact shell of your house and all the levels of your being fall into the space that has no name. And you are left alone in all the world without a map, without a path, without a point of view. I love that sentence, she opens the ground beneath the barely intact shell of your house. It's beautiful. Mm, And sometimes that's exactly the experience. You know, something that you took yourself to be just falls through the bottom. You know, in Buddhism, it's called, you know, the bottom falling out of the bucket. You know, and then what you are is what's looking out. You know, and and what you're looking at is the whole world of, of being, you know. It doesn't mean you're, you know, our... Our particularly unique expression isn't doing its thing. Of course it is, but there's that deeper knowing. Yeah, and it's not always comfortable, as these two paragraphs point, you know. Yeah. Sometimes it's quite uncomfortable as our illusions are being dismantled or, or worn away. You write in this chapter that the best advice you have for people in this phase of the awakening process is to, quote-unquote, become the burning Tell us mm-hmm. what you mean by that, become the burning. Well, sometimes there's an experience actually of, a, of, of actual heat in the body, of, of burning, and you, you know, it feels uncomfortable, and the mind will want to get rid of it. Um, but when we're being anything that is arising, we're not separate from it. So, you know, we can be the discomfort, we can be the fear, we can be the fire that feels like it's burning in your gut. Um, because our awareness has no boundaries whatsoever. This is boundless, timeless awareness. It it can go anywhere, and it, 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 it is not separate from any experience or any moment. So, you know, we're just inviting that which we are, this heart of awareness that both, you know, is aware but also compassionate, you know, into the center of this discomfort or or this feeling. You know, it could be a feeling of rage or jealousy or fear. It could be lots of things that come up, not to be judged, but be, they, they come up to be seen and to be liberated back into the wholeness of our being. And so when we're not separating ourselves from them, we'll feel there's a softening that happens. There's a there's a deeper acceptance that what's here is just what's here. It's it's not a judgment about a, a self. It's uh, it's just an expression. You know, we're not the victims of life necessarily. We're its expressions, and so often we feel like a feeling or or even bad weather or whatever. You know that that we become victims of life. And I'm not saying there aren't 
moments that where where we truly have felt victimized, but that's on the relative plane. But in the in the deeper dimension, we're not victims of life; we're expressions of it. There was a part of the book, Dorothy, that I think you know might have been the part of the book that touched me the most, which is when you were writing about your husband's death, your husband mm. of nearly five decades. Yes. And what that was like for you. And I'm wondering if we can talk some about that, because I think sometimes people have this myth that somebody who's had an authentic awakening experience might not have sorrow or loss. And Mm. you describe the many different aspects of this experience quite beautifully. So I wonder if you could share some of that. Sure. Um, I mean, one of the things that happens in this awake aware beingness that we truly are is that there's just an acceptance of the moment being what it is. So, you know, when we're moving more and more from that dimension, uh, we're not trying to get away from what's here. I mean, it doesn't mean we're going to stand in front of a bus if it's coming on it, uh, at us, but we're um, there's just an acceptance of life as it is. And if we're if we experience a loss of a loved one, the natural human response to that is grief you know it, it it's it's not i mean even the great tibetan um teacher marpa you know he his son had died and he was out, i think behind a barn or whatever and one of his students saw him weeping and and asked you know you know beloved teacher you tell us that all of this life is an illusion yet here you are weeping you know why? And he said, "Yes, all of life is an illusion, and the death of a, of a child is the greatest of all." You know, it, it it doesn't mean we don't have our human experience. So after my husband died, there was just this depth of grief that I I'm not sure I'd ever felt in my life. It would just sweep through, but nothing tried to stop it, and then it would just end as quickly as it started. You know, it would be very surprising the the almost archetypal kind of feeling that would wash through and then it would be gone you know when there was no attempt to manage it or stop it or start it or whatever and there was just a sense of some point you know i mean i could speak more specifically but of 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 knowing that his presence was the presence that's in everything and and realizing that even though a transformation had happened, you know, death isn't an end, we're just transformed. Um, This transformation had happened out of the the form that I loved as form, but that who and what he was is who and what we all are and and have always been. And so there's just this, this sense of seeing that in the clouds, in the sky, and the flowers, in the trees, and the birds, you know, that 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 which he is is that which you and I are, and it, it doesn't go away. And even in death, it doesn't go away. And certainly the love doesn't go away. And, you know, when, when Raman Maharshi was dying, you know, he said, um, people say I'm leaving, but where would I go? I am here. And that's exactly the feeling I've had with my husband over all these years that he's been uh, gone in terms of the form. Every time I would ask, where are you? The answer was always this, I'm here. And then you knew it was true, you know. Whoever it is that we've loved, that we've, we're connected with, you know, they're here in our heart, the heart that we share and the heart that doesn't come and go, you know. It's, it's the thing that doesn't come and go despite all the experiences, some of joy, some of suffering, some of grief, some of excitement. So, you know, it, there was a gift in the realization of seeing, you know, what we are, even after the moment of so-called death, as being present, you know, in all of life. But that doesn't mean that as human beings we aren't going to feel sorrow or grief. I miss him. I miss my husband. You know, um, I loved the life we had together. But on another level, he's not gone. So that's the paradox. 
I just have two final questions for you, Dorothy. One is that you write in the book, having even a very authentic awakening does not necessarily guarantee maturity. And my question to you is, okay, even an authentic awakening does not guarantee maturity. I can testify to this because I've <laughs> talked to a lot of Sounds True authors who seem to have had genuine awakenings, but there are some maturity gaps. So my right. question is, what does create maturity in your view? What do you mean by that word and what creates it? Well, part of it is our willingness to grow up, you know, to take responsibility um, even as we know that life itself is, is moving as a whole, it's still moving as us. And so, you know, the desire to, to see as clearly as we can the moments of untruth that arise within each of us. Do you know, there, we all have con conditioned um, places. We all have, we might say, you know, a little little children knocking at the door waiting to be let into our heart that we say, oh, no, not you again, and slam the door in their face. You know, we, we, we have those. But when, when our intention is to awaken as deeply as we can and to see into that, those places that, where we're not grown up yet, where, where we're still operating from a, you know, egoic contractions or innocent misunderstandings or that sort of thing, you know. So when we, when we have that moment, the truth in us will see the untruth, we, we could say. You know, when, when you awaken, then that dimension of your being is, is engaged more fully, more consciously. So we could say the truth in us sees untruth. Now what are we going to, how are we going to respond? Are we going to pretend that since we've had an awakening that that, that isn't here I mean, to me, that's that's not being mature. You know, it's not it's not really seeing from the depth of our being the places that are yet to be liberated back into wholeness. So, you know, we can we can we we can all have our blind spots. You know, and life will show us. You know, life will give us mirrors for them um, if we're willing to look mm -hmm. <laughs> into the mirror. Mm -hmm. Okay. Finally, a last question. This program's called Insights at the Edge. And one of the things I'm often curious about is what someone's growing edge is in their life. What challenge or inner work they might be doing right now in their life. And I'm wondering if you could share that with us, your current growing edge. Well, this may <laughs> this may sound funny, but you know, it's it's my physical being is a growing edge. You know, I've never been particularly interested in, in uh, working out or, you know, I, I did run a marathon once, but, but as I grow older, you know, there's, an, there's a wisdom here that, you know, the body really needs to move a little bit more. And, you know, I, I, I've tried gyms and so forth, and that doesn't have any appeal and so forth. But I love watching, I love watching the Warriors basketball team. Uh, especially Steph Curry, who, you know, anyway, for basketball fans out there, you'll know who I'm talking about, but others might not. But but I was really sitting with, you know, what what could inspire inspire the desire, you know, to, in a sense, become more physically active. And, and, and I wasn't saying, oh, why, why can't I do it? And I just have to, you know, buck up and, you know, be more disciplined about this because, if you don't enjoy something, you're probably not going right. to do it. Um, so I was just like kind of opening myself to this edge, you know, the edge of, of the physical body not being particularly uh, uh, exercised or <laughs> moved around too much. You know, I have a ra rather sedentary life. Um, and, and then, you know, this master class by Steph Curry online came into my, onto my computer and I thought, oh my gosh, I don't know anything about the actual playing of basketball. I love watching the, the Warriors because it's like a ballet. They're so, there's such a flow when things are going anyway. So I signed up for this class, you know, and I, and I said, I'm sure, you know, they, they, the first class online, this was the first class said, you know, well, why are you taking this class? And I said, 
I said in my little blog thing, well, I'm probably the oldest person ever to take this class. I'm 74 years old. I'm a grandmother. I've never played basketball, but I really have an interest in um, in watching it, and I, I'd love to know more, and I'm hoping I get a basketball for Christmas. <laughs> so lo and behold, I did get a basketball for Christmas, and uh, I've started to do these, you know, exercises of playing basketball. I mean, I don't, I'm never going to be on a team, but just learning how to dribble and how to shoot. It's amazing. You know, you work up a sweat and it's so much fun. And so it was kind of like there's an edge, but there was an openness to, to, to see if there was something that could come. You know, there was a receptivity. Is there something that could come here that could be really inspiring to to care for the body that wants to move more. And and so this is my, you know, my current fun is playing basketball. Well, Dorothy, best. we're going to have to play some one-on-one when I come out to California. Uh, did you play basketball? I did, but that's such a surprising answer from you. I love it. <laughs> Wonderful. I know. It's surprising to me and my kids as well, but it's, it's, quite, it's, it's quite fun and you know, uh, it, it, it's doing the job at the moment. We'll see. I've been speaking with Dorothy Hunt. It's been a great delight. She's the author of the new book, Ending the Search, From Spiritual Ambition to the Heart of Awareness. Dorothy, you get out there and play hard, and uh, thank you so much for the beautiful <laughs> thank, conversation. Thank you, Tammy. Thank you. I enjoyed it. Thanks so much. SoundsTrue.com. Many voices, one journey. Thanks for listening.